Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Turns out he hasn't built up immunity. A court rules being a former president does not shield Donald Trump from prosecution. So the trial alleging he tried to subvert the 2020 election can proceed. But Trump still has one more legal shot at getting the case thrown out. A year of aftershocks. Twelve months after a massive earthquake killed tens of thousands in Turkey and Syria, our guest says the grief, the anger and the struggle have not subsided. Unwarranted, the case against an Ontario woman facing a number of drug charges is thrown out because police used a battering ram to smash down her door. Her lawyer says that is good news for your charter rights. An unprecedented and unwelcome delay. After Senegal postpones its presidential election until the end of the year, protesters demand swift action. One opposition leader tells us it amounts to a constitutional coup d'etat. The eyes are the windows to the scroll. Last time we spoke to the man behind the Vesuvius challenge, he said he'd be happy even if they found a grocery list on a long-hidden ancient scroll. Now he says what they found is much better than pickup milk. And their cubs runneth over. A Florida congressman wants to be able to shoot the bears he says are running rampant in his state, not the polite ones, just the ones that vandalize houses because they're on drugs. As it happens, the Tuesday edition... Radio that would hate to be the bearer of bad news. Donald Trump is not above the law. That was the ruling handed down today by a U.S. federal appeals court. The former president argued he could not be prosecuted on charges. He tried to subvert the results of the 2020 election. The three judges hearing the case unanimously rejected that claim. Now all eyes will be on the Supreme Court. What they do will determine if and when his trial goes ahead, with November's election day fast approaching. Jill Weinbanks is a former Watergate prosecutor and the co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. We reached her in Chicago. Jill, the judges were clear and united in their decision. What did you highlight? What did you underline as you were reading through it? My big takeaway is first that it is unanimous and that it is scathing. It totally obliterates all of the arguments raised by the appellant, Donald J. Trump, and rules against every single one of them for good legal reasons. We cannot accept former President Trump's claim, they write, that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power. That's just part of what they wrote in the decision. Just tell us a bit more of of their reasoning to reject his claim to immunity. Well, let me also say that not only was it unanimous, but they gave him only one week to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court And the reason they did that is because there is currently a stay on the ongoing trial. And they said that if 
He did not appeal and ask for a stay from the Supreme Court that they would overturn the stay and let the pretrial proceedings begin again and a trial date be set. So that's very important. But they went through every single one of his arguments and said that he absolutely engaged in allegedly criminal conduct and that there is nothing in the U.S. Constitution or statutes that permits a former president who is now just a U.S. citizen with all the rights that a citizen has but no additional potential immunity that he might have had were he still president. A spokesperson for the Trump campaign, Stephen Chung, you may have seen, warned this ruling would leave every future president open to indictment by their opponents. He told the New York Times, quote, without complete immunity, a president of the United States would not be able to properly function, end quote. What do you make of that warning? I think it's laughable because you would have to have substantial allegations of criminal conduct to proceed. You would have to convince a grand jury to indict and a court not to dismiss it on its merits if there were not any allegations that would uphold a criminal conviction. You cannot just randomly indict anyone, a former president, a current president, or any U.S. citizen without some evidence. And so I do not see this as a potential, and I trust that the U.S. Department of Justice would not seek indictments. They are not political. The members of the Department of Justice make decisions on the facts and the law. And Donald Trump is the first former president, just to remind our listeners, to have been indicted. This isn't happening with any frequency. No, it's not, although it came close to happening during Watergate. As a member of the team, I recommended to the Watergate special prosecutor that as soon as Nixon resigned and was a private citizen, that the indictment should be brought against him because the evidence was clear that he had violated the law along with his co-conspirators. He was an unindicted co-conspirator in the case because he was the sitting president. But once he wasn't sitting president, he had no more rights. And if we had done that, this wouldn't be an issue now. In this case, despite everything you've, you've listed there, the unanimity of the decision, the, the tight deadline, February 12th, as you mentioned, for further legal action or further appeal, is there an escape patch still for Donald Trump? Yes, the Supreme Court is less reliable than it has been in the past. It seems to me in this case that the law and the facts are very clear and that they should uphold this very, very uh, well-crafted Court of Appeals decision. But they may take a political out of some sort. It's hard for me to argue that there is a legitimate legal basis for their not doing this. They may not take the case at all. That would be a fine outcome because it would let stand the Court of Appeals decision and would eliminate the stay so that the trial date could be set again. It was for March 4th, but because of the stay, no pretrial proceedings have gone mm -hmm. forward. And so we have to make up for lost time, but that is not much time. So I'm just hoping that the Supreme Court realizes the importance of this as, again, they did in both the Bush v. Gore and U.S. v. Nixon. They acted really quickly and issued a decision immediately after argument. 
or within um, a week of argument. So I think they need to do that because Americans have said the outcome of a trial could influence how they vote. So they have to do that at the same time as they are considering whether he can be on the ballot at all or could ever hold office again under the 14th Amendment of our Constitution. So there are two critical cases before the Supreme Court that need decisions quickly. Election Day, as you well know, is just nine months away now. How quickly do you think the Supreme Court needs to decide on that immunity issue? I would say it's extremely urgent, that it's very, very crucial for Americans to know whether a former president, a private citizen, is immune for conduct that is alleged to be criminal, and it's only alleged. It still has to be proved at trial. There's no finding here that it is criminal. It's just that he has a right to be tried, that the government has a right to a speedy trial, as does he. And so I think it's quite crucial that it go forward and that the courts decide it quickly. Jill, thank you for your time. Thank you. Jill Weinbanks is a lawyer and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. She's in Chicago. When police in Hamilton, Ontario, knocked down a resident's door in June 2021, it took some doing. In fact, thanks to security camera footage of the incident, we know that it took exactly 16 blows of a battering ram. last few seconds of Hamilton, Ontario police executing what's known as a dynamic entry or a no-knock warrant two and a half years ago. The woman whose apartment they raided was charged with several drug offenses related to the cultivation and sale of cannabis and psilocybin, but now that case has been thrown out after the judge ruled that the officers involved breached the defendant's charter rights and showed, quote, cavalier disregard when they entered her home. Kim Schofield is the woman's lawyer. We reached her in Toronto. Kim, is is cavalier disregard how you would describe what you saw in that video? I think it accurately depicts what um, what the judge saw, what uh, what I saw when I first uh, saw the video, and unfortunately, what my client saw uh, before the police uh, busted into uh, the unit. Were you surprised? You know, you've done this this work for quite some time. So, were you surprised when when you press play on that video? I was, I was, because how we often have these entrances described as uh, efficient, effective, safe, so those are all terms that we hear, but obviously in this case, uh, none of those terms uh, seem to apply. What evidence, in the end, did police seize that day? So the police um, managed uh, to sees a considerable amount of marijuana, uh, some mushrooms, uh, and some cash, plus a number of electronic devices. So $500,000 roughly uh, worth of marijuana products, $50,000 cash. This is a place of suspected criminal activity, drug activity. Police had a warrant. 
what should they have done? So when police have a warrant, it authorizes entry. But uh, the strange thing about Canadian law is it doesn't authorize or even speak to the manner of entry. So what the police should have done is had uh, some uh, kind of meeting, some kind of conference in order to determine whether this should be, as the rule is, a knock and announce, or whether uh, they should exercise their discretion and uh, do what's called a no-knock or dynamic entry, which should be very rare and the exception, not the rule. But we found in this case it was very much the rule that at least in the city of Hamilton, 90% of the time, uh, these dynamic or um, no-knock entries are made. That 90% statistic came up in court. Uh, two of the officers who executed the warrant told Judge Andrew Goodman that Hamilton police employ what they refer to as dynamic entries 90% of the time, and, quote, maybe even more often than that, yes. unquote. <laughs> I th- yeah. We've certainly heard about these, you know, on our program. CBC's The Fifth Estate has covered this as well. But that number might come as a surprise to many listeners. Well, what we hear is that it is the rule and not the exception, and it's supposed to be the exception, not the rule. So I was surprised um, that they admitted it. And the reason why I think they uh, acknowledge that is because they see nothing wrong with that. But in this case, if if they had knocked more politely, announced themselves, could the suspects not have run away? Could evidence not have potentially been destroyed? Is that an argument you hear? Well, we hear that argument, but this is a a unit that is many stories uh, floors up, so they can't escape anywhere. There's one entrance, uh, and there's a substantial amount of marijuana, not a flushable substance in that quantity. And there was some suggestion maybe some items could be thrown out the window. But even if they're thrown out the window, they still exist. But there was no suggestion that these people were individuals that would destroy evidence or or put the police in danger. And the the people potentially inside were not uh, people with criminal records. How could a different kind of entry, a proper entry, in your view, have changed the outcome of this case? Oh, I I think if if they did everything correctly then a conviction is certainly um, maybe not a foregone conclusion, but but it certainly would have been a, a, a possibility. And listeners can read more about this story in the work of our CBC News colleague Bobby Herstova. In a statement to Bobby, a spokesperson for Hamilton Police said they formed a working group on this issue back in 2022. They say they've already made changes, including requiring more details related to any no-knock warrants implementing better tracking, and also uh, conducting charter training with all new recruits. Are all of those steps in the right direction in your view? Well, I'm optimistic that it is a step along the line, and and it's a a part of the process. So what we see with policing is that it is a slow and stubborn uh, bureaucracy, because there will be not, there's there's non-believers so it, it's a long process. It has to come through training, and it has to come through uh, regulation, because this really is a direction to Hamilton Police that uh, uh, they've got to they've got to take a second look at the way they execute search warrants. 
And just to underline for our listeners, right now a warrant is a warrant. Police don't need any special permission from a judge to execute a no-knock situation. They just need to be able to justify what they've done after the fact. Are you suggesting that legislation needs to change? I think that we have to have a look at it for sure. It's not as though the officers don't make a decision. And it's not a decision that's made at the door. Sometimes the decisions are made at the door because of uh, exigent circumstances. Something changes. And, and of course, the law will always allow for that. But this was one of those cases, like many others, where um, a decision is made on the basis of factors. And that those factors could be uh, laid out in front of the judge who grants that authorizing uh, entry in the first place. So that really, I think, is uh, what Parliament has to weigh in on. And I hope that it doesn't take uh, a tragedy, as we've seen uh, south of the border, uh, in order for us to, to make some kind of legislative change about the use of uh, no-knock uh, warrants or dynamic entries. Kim, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Kim Schofield represents a Hamilton woman whose drug case was thrown out after an Ontario Superior Court found that police use of a no-knock warrant violated her charter rights. We reached Ms. Schofield in Toronto. It's been roughly 2,000 years since Mount Vesuvius erupted, burning and burying the world around it and freezing it in time. Hundreds of scrolls in the library of a nearby villa are among the ancient artifacts that have since been excavated, and the scrolls are filled with fascinating information or hopelessly outdated gossip. We, We don't really know yet because they are very tough to read due to having mostly been burned to a crisp, which rendered the ink invisible on the blackened papyrus. They're also far too fragile to unroll, which presents researchers with a task that seemed impossible. Note the past tense, though. Last March, we told you about the Vesuvius Challenge, which put up a million dollars in prizes to anyone who could come up with a way to decipher the contents using 3D x-rays of one particular scroll. Nat Friedman is one of the founders of the challenge. Here's what he told us at the time. The dream is big. I mean, the extreme upside case is there could be a lost work in here. Uh, there are famous books from Rome that we, from ancient Rome that we don't have that we hear about. They're referred to poems of Sappho, autobiographies that are lost, epic works. Or it could be something surprising that we don't know about. I think almost anything would be fascinating, even if it's just a grocery list. That would be so, so cool to see. Well, yesterday, Nat Friedman announced that a team of three students had earned the grand prize after deciphering more than 2,000 Greek letters from the scroll. We reached him in San Francisco. Nat, you asked people to decipher this text. You put out the call. How did they do it? So the first big breakthrough was when a guy named Casey Handmer, who's uh, an American entrepreneur and uh, you know an ex-jet propulsion laboratory engineer, um, he actually did something surprising. We didn't. Uh, we thought everyone would use software to solve this problem, but Casey just spent hundreds of hours just manually looking through the X-rays with his own eyes. And after studying them for quite a long time, he started to notice a pattern in some parts of the scroll that kind of looked like the surface of a dried lake bed. Uh, he called it cracked mud, and, and now we just call it the crackle pattern. And he said, "This crackle is ink." And he identified a couple places where there was a Greek letter. He found a pi and he found an omicron. And 
when Casey found this, he shared his discovery with, uh, with our community. And then a 21-year-old undergraduate student from the University of Nebraska, a guy named Luke Ferritor, looked at this crackle pattern that Casey had discovered. And he said, well, geez, I bet I can use AI to find this pattern at scale all across the scroll, which would be very hard to do manually. And so he trained a model, an AI model, to do that. And uh, he told me that he was, uh, he set it working and went to a party with mm -hmm. some friends. And when he was walking home from the party, uh, he looked at his phone to see if his model had made any progress and found himself staring for the first time in 2000 years, first time anyone had ever seen an entire Greek word. And, uh, you know, you can just imagine what that felt like. <laughs> what was it like for you when they said we did it? Oh, my God, it was like a miracle. Um, you know, we had put this challenge out and done our very best to attract, you know, the smartest people we could from around the world to try to take a crack at it. And thousands of people tried. And then the whole time, of course, you're nervous. Like, what if this doesn't work? What mm -hmm. if it's impossible? <laughs> you, know, you don't know if it's all going to end up panning out and being worthwhile. But it was so incredible that it did work. And it's wonderful also that it ended up, you know, being some people kind of um, around the world who maybe aren't prominent, you know, it wasn't some big team from uh, MIT or Google that did this. It was, uh, you know, students primarily. And, um, and so the glory is theirs. Let's do the big reveal. What was on the scroll? It's actually written by an Epicurean philosopher, a guy named Philodemus. And it's about food and it's about music, and it's about pleasure and how to enjoy life. And he talks, for example, about whether it's better to just eat whatever you want or maybe deprive yourself a little bit so you enjoy it more when you eat it. And then, you know, we've gotten all the way to the end of the scroll, and at the very end, he takes a closing swipe at some unnamed ideological adversaries. And, and I think it's the Stoics that he's talking about, but he says... <laughs> He says, their problem is they have nothing to say about pleasure, either in general or in particular. It turns out to be, uh, you know, some kind of beef that this one <laughs> philosopher has with another group of philosophers. It sort of feels like a 2,000-year-old blog post. Um, and <laughs> Well, maybe and, they'll you know, decipher maybe... blog posts uh, 2,000 years from now at their own peril. But also capers were quite <laughs> prominently featured, uh, as I understand yeah, um, it, in yeah, this text. What's up with that? Yeah, among the foods that he talks about are capers. And uh, one of the things he's talking about there is whether foods that are more rare are better than <laughs> foods that are more plentiful. And he argues that they're not. <laughs> and so, um, and he also talks about a guy named Xenophantes, who is a flute player, whose flute playing was apparently so magnificent and moving that Alexander the Great drew his weapon when he heard Xenophantes play. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because, like, these days, Stoicism has a sort of um, you know new popularity. A lot of people are into Stoicism, and uh, I don't know. Maybe there's some meaning to this. Maybe Epicureanism is what our culture needs now, and this is why you know, we're unearthing this big trove of Epicurean ideas. So you've got this technology. Are there more scrolls that you want to uh, unpack, so to speak? That's the exciting thing. Um, we have so far read five percent of one scroll. And already it's just been extremely exciting. Um, but we have actually in a library in Naples, we have over 800 unopened scrolls, 800 little lumps of charcoal that remain to be read. And we don't know what's in any of them. It's this mystery box. And so 
you know, of course, we'll, we'll probably find some more Epicurean philosophy, but there, there's a, everyone has a long wish list of their own things. You know, could we find an Aristotle dialogue or could we find a Livy's lost history or a poem by Sappho or maybe a lost Homeric epic work? Um, all those things would be exciting. I like to point out we were pretty close with the shopping list <laughs> idea. Let's note That's that. a good point. Yeah, you're right. It did turn out to be about food. <laughs> ah, we really called We had it. a hunch. We had a hunch. Yeah. Nat, thank yeah. you. My pleasure. Nat Friedman is the founder of the Vesuvius Challenge. We reached him in San Francisco. Now it's time once again for our regular feature, the As It Happens Florida Bear Hoodlum Watch. Dangerous, destructive, furry, irresponsible, disrespectful, high on drugs. Florida Bear Hoodlum Watch. Now, most bears are nice. They eat honey and they live in the forest with their friends, a piglet and a young boy. But then you have the hoodlum bears. Rude, rebellious. That thing they're supposed to do in the woods, they do it on your carpet due to being whacked out on trippy street narcotics. Florida State Congressman Jason Schoaf has had enough of that. So he has introduced a bill that would remove a lot of current penalties for killing bears in Florida. Not the cool bears. As he told a committee, quote, we're talking about the ones that are on crack and they break your door down and they're standing in your living room growling and tearing your house apart. When you run into one of these crack bears, you should be able to shoot it, period, unquote. It's a bold stance, especially since our research here at the As It Happens Florida Bear Hoodlum Watch reveals no evidence that a bear has ever been on crack and broke someone's door down and stood in their living room growling and tearing their house apart. But it could happen, I guess. Theoretically, there are drugs and there are bears. So the drugs could get in the bears. But critics say Mr. Schof just wants to shoot bears with impunity and that if we stopped destroying bear habitats, they could stay in the forest instead of standing in our living rooms, which they're not doing. But the congressman seems to have intel that we don't have. And he's determined to keep those bears from being all high and mighty. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. A year ago, people in Turkey were grappling with shock and grief after they were struck by a 7.8 magnitude earthquake. Today, of course, the aftershocks have long ended, but the anger remains. Some 60,000 people were killed in Turkey and Syria after tens of thousands of buildings toppled. 
Today, the government held a series of commemorative events. In the southern city of Antakya, crowds gathered calling on the mayor to resign. Baris Yapar was visiting his parents in Samanda, a village outside of Antakya, when the quake hit. As he told us a year ago, they immediately rushed to check on his grandparents. I mean, let me actually get out of the car. Well, just be, be yeah. safe. I mean, it's just simply dark, actually. We don't really see so much except the collapsed buildings and some ruins and people like us just being in the car park trying to get through the night. Can you tell me where you were when the earthquake first hit? I was simply sleeping and then I woke up to like this tremors and we drew down to see how are my grandparents were doing. When we get there, three buildings, including theirs, were simply collapsed in their block. Goodness. My dad went like a little mad, naturally. He started like screaming his mother's name like around the building to see if he can hear any voice. The voice didn't come. Then we just kept calling all these organizations, NGOs, government people, hospitals and so on to see if we can get any help. And did you? No, I think it's been around 19 hours, and my grandparents are still under the ruins, so I mean, no help came. From February 6th, 2023, that was part of Neil's conversation with Barish Yapar. He and his family were eventually able to recover the bodies of his grandparents. We reached him today in Cyprus, where he's studying. Barish, how did you mark this day? I mean, I couldn't actually sleep a lot because... The time coming up to 4.17 and the messages I was receiving from everywhere and the silent march that was happening yesterday and so on, they were all simply in my head. So I just stayed awake until something around 5 a.m., just watching all the live videos from afar and watching Hatay Academy Orchestrate and everything else. So it was a pretty rough morning, actually. There was the Academy Orchestra, as you said, in Hatay, the silent protests, people mm-hmm. marching through the streets, just holding up lights or candles. Yeah. How are your parents doing? It took them something around five months to find like a one plus one place in Antioch to simply like settle, like get out of mm-hmm. their tents. But I mean, my dad's office was also broken down in the earthquake, so he is still like working from a tent in the center of the city, which is the car park actually last year I talked about. it. So where you were speaking to us from last year in that parking lot is where your dad's Mm -hmm. makeshift office is right now in a tent? Yeah. I mean, that place became a common place for people afterwards to like put their tents in and spend the time. But then some people are still living in the same exact spot in their tents. And some people like my dad is doing his business from that position right now. There are the physical wounds, the physical implications, the infrastructure implications, as you've described. But how are they feeling a year later? They're a little lost because in... Like Antioch, culturally, people 
care about the death so much the rituals after somebody in your family dies takes something up to 40 days and then Mm -hmm. each year you would do something else but somehow earthquake has taken the privilege of people to grieve properly so people cannot gather with each other for their specific deaths for their specific losses because they have their own losses too so everything became after for example we found my grandparents it it was just like a huge race of taking them into a morgue and then taking them out the next day and then burying them and then going back to the car and then trying to figure out how to survive so now it's all coming out slowly mm -hmm. Uh, the after emotions. the year of the earthquake yeah. yeah now that like people are realizing the last year was not only that they didn't know but like they are realizing that there are so many emotions that are suppressed and there is so many neglect on people of Antioch that they didn't even have the words to talk about anymore they didn't have the words to scream about and this is why they performed a silent mm -hmm. march yesterday just so they could like give a message that we don't have anything more to tell so my parents are kind of in that situation too at this point there were also demonstrations in Antakya today or Antioch as you say booing the health minister calling for the mayor there to to resign you lost your grandparents as we've said but neighbors people you grew up with as well what are the other survivors you've been speaking to? What are they telling you? I mean, some of them that I spoke of had to leave. So they're in this purgatory. They don't understand the pain back home, but they also cannot find themselves rooted in. And people in Antioch are like the ones that did stay and survive. They're doing their best to help their communities but it's very obvious that they're just under so much stress at this point and they feel stuck like they love their city and they want to help but they are also powerless and they're stuck in this weird political financial geological situation that they cannot get out of so it just gets harder and harder to talk with each other each day now mm -hmm. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, is in the region today, oversaw a lottery for more than 9,000 homes in Kahramanmaraş, which is at the epicenter of, of where all of this happened. He also said that uh, he made promises, as they did in the aftermath of the earthquake, but the latest promise was that the government hopes to, to deliver 200,000 homes across the earthquake zone by the end of this year. Do you have faith in those promises? I mean, at this point, it's just a little hard to catch up, honestly. It's been like, because at first it was going to be some certain type of loan, and then it was going to be something like government paying some portion, and then it was going to be that they were doing the house and we were going to pay in like a mortgage kind of system, and then now there is this. So like we just wait for something to actually happen, then just hold on into promises now. Mm -hmm. Are your parents rebuilding their home? Are they going to be able to move back into their apartment? So they were planning on, I mean, kind of rebuilding the house. But the problem now is 
around last year, September, we learned that our house were being transferred into government reserves because one morning my dad woke up and he received an SMS saying that your property has been approved to be transferred uh, through the Ministry of Heritage and so on. So at this point, I don't, uh, yeah. I don't exactly know why, but it's happening. Yeah, the the government has said the reserve building zone law is a safety precaution. So, so they're saying this is about making sure what is built is safer and, and earthquake resistant. Do you believe that? I mean, in such case, at least we should have known what it was going to happen like to us because if they are rebuilding something are we going to be placed back into our houses in our own locations or are we going to be placed somewhere else or are we going to be sent to a different district so this doesn't exactly clear out any questions when was the last time you were able to go back uh, last fall something around mm-hmm. november what does it look like now like last year, when the very first weeks when you were walking around, you would feel like it is an earthquake hit city. But now it looks like a decayed land of like all these rubbles that's still not cleared out. The smell is still not gone. The uh, water still not clean. So the more you walk, the more you inhale this horrible dust into your lungs and your eyes start getting a little red and and you just feel lost actually doesn't feel like the home you remember no Budish thank you again for your time take care you too thank you bye Barish Yapar was in Samandam a village outside of Antakya Turkey when earthquakes struck a year ago today we reached him in Cyprus Violence in Pelican Narrows has reached a breaking point, and leaders in the northern Saskatchewan community say help is desperately needed. Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation Chief Karen Bird says the community is facing escalating gang violence and drug use. She's pleading with the province and Ottawa for more safety and health supports. Meanwhile, the local health clinic has closed its doors to non-urgent cases as it deals with an influx of emergency trauma patients. John Michael Stevens is a doctor there. We're seeing multiple gunshot wounds in all ages of people, but but even as young as the mid-teens, stabbings, machete attacks, things like that. And the gunshot wounds aren't pellet guns, they're shotguns, sawed-off shotguns, rifles. We've had people with injuries to, you know, rifle injuries to the face, shotguns to the chest, legs, arms. In my seven years, we've had people who have certainly died from from uh, these assaults, but they're just getting much more frequent. They're very, very serious, life-threatening wounds, for sure. The staff don't 
don't fully feel safe. We are understaffed in terms of security services and nursing services. We very often have patients that are intoxicated under the influence of various substances, and especially with crystal meth being a common um, substance now, people can be unpredictable and aggressive and violent. And there have been instances where staff have been threatened, uh, and, and it's increasing lately is the staff involvement has been increasing. And I know there's a mounting fear amongst staff of being victim to something. So I think that's what's happening is it's not just a statement, you know, and, and we wouldn't want people to think that we're closing down as a statement. It's certainly for the safety of the staff and so that we can continue to provide emergency services to the community. Um, fairly recently was the first time I actually, when I left the, the clinic to walk up to my suite, which is not a very long walk, I felt compelled to look around and I really felt um, a strange sensation of, I better just hurry because who knows, there might be a bullet that's just, that flies at the wrong time in the wrong place. So this, you saying it's not to make a statement. This is for the health and safety of like yourself and, and other healthcare workers who are there. What could fix this? What do you need to feel safe? You know, I think at the end of the day, the violence needs to settle. Um, the frequency and the severity of what we're seeing would need to settle. And I'm not sure what approach is, is the best approach to, to lead to that happening. Um, but again, I know there are many, many people in talks daily now working towards a strategy or a plan for that. There are many people trying to help. John Michael Stevens is a doctor in Pelican Narrows. He was talking to CBC reporter Sam Sampson. In a statement to the CBC, Saskatchewan's Ministry of Health says it's aware of the situation and is working with Indigenous Services Canada to support the community. Sound of protesters in Senegal after the president announced plans to delay elections. They were supposed to be held in about three weeks, but last night Parliament passed a vote to postpone the elections until December 15th. According to President Macky Sall, the delay was necessary to investigate corruption allegations at the Constitutional Court. But there have been protests since as people push back against a move they say is unconstitutional. Mamadou Lamine Diallo is an opposition politician in Senegal. We reached him in Dakar. Mamadou Diallo, the, the president of your country, says that this is all to, to, quote, initiate open national dialogue, that there are issues with corruption, that this is the only way to make sure that there is a peaceful election. What do you think of those comments? I entirely disagree because the issue of corruption, as he was mentioning, there is no proof at this time that the Conseil Constitutionnel, the, the, the judges, are corrupted. He's alleging that the, the, the judges who put together the list of presidential candidates were accepting bribes. Yeah. You're saying there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence on this. He just decided that there are corruption, and then he just decided to postpone the date of election, and then from the National Assembly, the Parliament, they have put a proposal which uh, would give him uh, 10 more months for his mandate. 
You were in Parliament as that as that was all being discussed last night. Debate was suspended for a time. What happened? Well, uh, the, the debate was suspended, and then uh, while well, they 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 called the gendarmerie, you know, the military police of Senegal, to make sure that the member of parliament wanted to vote that proposal, was able to do that. So the other member of parliament who were against that proposal were were just uh, pushed out of, of of the parliament. Were there heated that exchanges, or were people fighting? Is that why riot police came in, or is it just because a difference of opinion? There was a there was no people fighting as such. Uh, some some members they, they they broke because they said they won the debate, and uh, the majority says no. There is enough now. We will stop the debate and then just go to to, to the vote. Mm-hmm. That what happened, and they called the, the military police. Senegal has a history of peaceful transfers of power. It's a very stable democracy. Yes. Why do you think Macky Sall thinks he can do this now? Well, because uh, I think uh, he, he thinks that he can maneuver, he can put pressure on people and then impose himself. That's, that, that's my own opinion. The second one is Senegal uh, will, will, will have uh, gas and, and oil. Uh, normally, they say that the production will start in, in the mid-year. Uh, probably he thinks that with, uh, with this renewal, he can now try to set up some kind of dictatorship like the one we have in Cameroon and, or, or in Central Africa. We were talking about the vote last night. In the end, the vote passed in Parliament with with a clear majority. The election will be moved to December. What do you think Macky Sall wants? Well, Macky Sall wants to stay in power. You, you know, he he was he has argued that he had the right to go for a third round, but the pressure in Senegal and certainly outside of Senegal. Uh, was so so strong that he renounced for the third candidacy to the head of uh, to be to be president of Senegal. But nevertheless, I think he still want to continue to run Senegal. So you think after ten months, and then uh, it's going to continue. You think yes, he, after he ten, will not yes, step yes, they will. Uh, after ten months, they can go out to go 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 back to the parliament and then extend for any for for another twelve months. Because now they have opened the door uh, that the, 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 the parliament can change Article 21. So there is no right. It's, that's what we're talking about, a coup d'etat, a constitutional coup d'etat. There is no right for the member of parliament, because they have the majority, to change that article and say that now, now the president, first they change the vote to the 15th of December, and now they extend the mandate to 10 months. But in 10 months' time, they can commence. They can come back again and say, well, we'll push for 10 months mm-hmm. we, so, and so on. We know about the protests that have played out on the streets of Senegal. What do you think will happen in the days ahead? Well, the problem is the gendarmerie is, is the one supporting President Macky Sall. They are very strong on the roads. They have uh, shut down uh, internet. They have uh, shut down the, the social media and then they are cracking down uh, on, 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 on demonstrations. There are some of our colleagues who are, who are there. They were arrested by police. Uh, that's the situation now. I don't know how it will evolve. Uh, but in, in any case, the people of Senegal disagree because there was a strong consensus here in Senegal, which says that the president cannot have 
more than two mandates. And after two mandates, he has to leave the office. Senegal's culture minister, Ali Oso, told BBC News the police response to protesters was justified. Here's a bit more of what the minister said. In Senegal, you can easily demonstrate in accordance with the law. But no country in the world will accept to tolerate or approve any use of social measures, TVs or radios, to call people to destroy, burn public and private goods, and then to promote violence. Is that what's happening? Uh, what, what, what happened um, uh, is, is that uh, in 2011, Makisal was with me demonstrating against the third candidacy of Matt uh, Abdullah Wat. At that time, he was asking people to demonstrate. Now he's in power. He said that people do not have the right to demonstrate. I think these people are becoming crazy and, 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 and they want to stop the democracy in Senegal. Senegal was a model of democracy in West Africa. They want to destroy that, that image. It's not acceptable. You uh, and those who agree with you are looking to challenge this delay, challenge what is happening. What will you do next? Well, we will go to the Constitutional Council and say that this proposal is against the Constitution. This is the legal thing that we are going to do. We are are mobilizing the people of Senegal, the the trade unions, uh, all those social uh, forces here in Senegal who were with us. Uh, in, in, in 2011, fighting for democracy, fighting for liberty. And now that they see practically how Makisal has maneuvered to try to get a third mandate and a fourth mandate and then fifth mandate. And we have to stop that. That's our strategy for the time being. Mamadou Diallo, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Mamadou Lamine Diallo is an opposition politician in Senegal. He spoke to us from Dakar. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.